Go ahead and take your copy of God's Word today and open it again to the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 8, uh, verses 32 through the first part of chapter 9 or chapter 9, verse 1. Um, I hope you know that the chapters and verses in your Bibles uh, were not placed there by the original authors, but were placed there later as a help for reference. And so uh, in many of your Bibles, uh, at least in mine anyway, there's kind of a section break after chapter 9, verse 1, because chapter 9, verse 1 probably belongs to the section before it rather than to verses 2 of chapter 9 and following. So don't be thrown off by that. Uh, but our, our, our text for consideration this morning is Mark chapter 8, verses 32 through chapter 9. Verse 1. If you're using one of the black Bibles uh, that's uh, under a chair in front of you, you'll find uh, this passage on page 793. Uh, If you don't own a copy of the Bible for yourself, take that little black copy home with you. We're glad for you to have it. Uh, Consider it our gift to you, and we pray that as you uh, continue in worship with us, that you'll bring it back with you, that it'll be all marked up with your notes, and it will continue to be a resource to you in your walk with Christ. I wonder for you, what is the most expensive thing that you ever bought until I bought a house? It was, uh, well, I don't know, I bought other expensive things, but the first most expensive thing I ever bought was a Nintendo when I was, I don't know, seven or eight years old and I saved my money and bought a Nintendo. But for most of us, the most expensive thing we've ever bought is a house. I wonder, what did it cost? Don't say that out loud. (laughs) We're not going to compare mortgages and terms and uh, values of homes, but usually purchasing a home comes with a, a, lot of, a lot of money, a significant down payment, a commitment to pay a, a sizable portion of your income for a number of months to pay for the house, usually 360 months, that's 30 years. That's a lot of months when you think about exactly how many that is, makes me want to quit. But <laughs> having to make that payment every month, that mortgage payment every month shapes how you look at your job. It shapes what you do with your paycheck. It, it shapes even how you structure the rest of your budget, knowing that at the beginning of the month, this, this chunk of money, or on the 15th or whenever you schedule your mortgage payment, this chunk of money is dedicated to the house. Now, you could not pay your mortgage. That's an option. But the result will eventually be foreclosure and eviction and at least a major hit to your creditworthiness and ability to make future purchases. Before you make a major purchase like a home, you count the cost. You consider what it's going to cost you in the long run. New banking regulations even require banks to give you a full breakdown of what your monthly mortgage payment is going toward and what dollar and what dollar and to what dollar amount so that you can see exactly what it will cost you to finance that house. Spoiler alert, with interest, it's always way more than just the cost of the home. I wonder, what would it look like if we were to put the same effort, the same study, the same prayer, the same planning, not into the decision to buy a home or a car or some other expensive thing, but into our decision to follow Jesus as his disciple? Would we still say yes to following him, knowing the true cost of it all? At the close of Mark chapter 8, Jesus gives a full disclosure statement to those who would seek to be his disciples, to inform them of precisely what it means and what it will cost to follow him. Just to give you a preview, this is not exactly a light moment in Mark's gospel. This is not a light passage in Mark's gospel. There is some weight and some heaviness to what Jesus says 
to his disciples and to the crowd in Mark chapter 8. And so if you don't leave this morning super jazzed and really happy and just ready to go and slap hands in the foyer or whatever, that's okay. There are parts of Scripture that are not always like just super, yay, let's go do this. This is a passage that, that requires our slow, meditative consideration. The call to follow Jesus, as we'll see in Mark chapter 8, is a call ultimately to deny yourself, your self-will, and to take up a readiness to die for the name of Christ and for the gospel with the promise of finding true life in Christ both now and in the age to come. The main idea of this passage put plainly is this, that Jesus requires the whole life, the whole life of those who would follow him. It demands my soul, my life, my all, we just sang. And so Jesus says here in Mark's gospel. Now, this morning, whether you have never trusted Jesus yet as Lord, as Christ, or if you've been following Him for some time, this morning you must count the cost of following Jesus. Whatever remains in our lives that prevents us from following Him faithfully must be set aside for the sake of making Jesus Christ Lord of our lives. So I would invite you, stand with me as you're comfortably able, as we honor God, as we read His Word. Mark chapter 8, I'm going to begin uh, in verse 31 and, uh, and then read through chapter 9, verse 1. We're kind of picking up where we sort of, a little bit before where we uh, left off last week. We had, uh, as we saw earlier in verse 29, Peter's confession that Jesus is the Christ. In verse 31, we read that Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him, took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. This is God's word. You may be seated. Following Jesus requires the whole life of those who would seek to make him Lord. As we pick up where we left off last week, we see, first of all, in verses 32 and 33, the Christ that we follow the Christ that we follow. Who is this Jesus that we follow after? Peter confessed that Jesus is the Christ. He's God's Messiah, God's appointed and anointed Redeemer. And right on the heels of Peter confessing that about Jesus and Jesus teaching the disciples what is ultimately necessary for the Christ, that he must die and be raised again, Peter then has the audacity to rebuke Jesus. That word rebuke is the same word that is used of Jesus 
two demons earlier in Mark's gospel. Jesus rebukes demons. He tells them, shut up, come out of that person. Peter rebukes Jesus. No way, Jesus. The Christ cannot die. You're supposed to institute the kingdom of Israel again and return us to our former glory. Death? No way. You're confused, Jesus. Let me set you straight. Let's just take a minute to talk about exactly what it is you're supposed to be and do. Oh, Peter. Jesus then turns to Peter and the same word rebukes him right back with maybe the most stinging words that a follower and a friend of Jesus could expect. Get behind me, Satan. Get behind me, accuser. Get behind me, enemy. Get behind me, opposer of God's will. Why does Jesus say this so harshly to Peter? Get behind me, Satan? Well, for one, he tells Peter that Peter's thinking about what Peter wants, not what God's will is. You're not setting your mind on the things of God, but the things of man. And because Peter is playing the role of Satan here, he's tempting Jesus to ignore God's will, and, and rather than enduring death, And being raised again, he's tempting Jesus to escape death. All of this goes to remind us that Christ, that Jesus, is a suffering and rising Messiah. It's necessary. It is is absolutely essential to who he is as God's Christ that he die and be raised again. And Jesus understands this about himself. He understands this about the, the role of the Christ. And while he lives with two natures, a divine nature and a human nature, his human nature also would prefer to avoid suffering. We know that in just a few chapters time, Jesus will, the night before he'll be arrested, betrayed and arrested and crucified, he goes to a garden there in the area of Jerusalem and he is praying. And in his prayer to God, he says in Mark 14, verse 36, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Right? If it's possible, God, let Jesus is praying this. Let me not suffer death this way. Jesus says, yet not what I will, but what you will. Jesus rebukes Peter because Peter wants what Peter wants, not what God wants. Peter wants Jesus to be Peter's kind of Christ, not God's kind of Christ. And so he gets rebuked. He gets corrected sharply, sternly, even harshly maybe, that he might understand exactly what it is that he's he's doing. He's trying to tempt Jesus to not do and to be what God has intended that he do. The Christ that we follow is a suffering and rising Messiah. Understand that the Jesus we are meant to follow after is the Jesus who suffered and died and was raised again. Now, I made this point last week, but it's essential that we return to it again. If it is necessary for the Christ, if it is necessary for Jesus to have died for sins and been raised again as a part of God's plan for providing for the rescue of sinners from their sin then if we are to follow Jesus, we must first understand that to follow any other so-called Jesus is not to follow the Christ of the Scriptures. Apart from His death and resurrection, there is no good news that we can call the Gospel. If it is Christ's death that paid for sins, then an uncrucified Jesus is no Savior. If it is His resurrection 
that vindicates his divinity and conquers death for all who trust in him, then any Jesus still in the grave is no redeemer. He's no Lord. He is no King of kings. It was necessary that the Christ would die for sins and be raised again. To follow any other Jesus that doesn't die for sins and is raised again is not to follow the Jesus of the Scriptures. But if Jesus did die, and if Jesus was raised again, as he predicted that he must be, and as historic evidence demonstrates to us even today that he did, well, then we need to adjust our expectations of Jesus to reflect reality and determine if that is the Jesus we want to follow. Do you want to follow a suffering, dying, rising Savior? Now, before you make the final decision to buy a house, an inspection is required. And when we uh, bought our house five, six years ago, uh, an inspector arrived, and over the course of at least an hour, hour and a half, he walked through the whole house and looked through everything for all of the problems that he could find. He banged on walls, he checked outlets, He moved the stove and the refrigerator to see what's going on behind them. He looked at the concrete in the garage and in the driveway. He climbed into the hot, stuffy attic space. And then he wrote up a report about all the stuff that he saw that might need to be addressed or things that we needed to know about the house before we bought it to give us the fullest picture of the home so we knew exactly what we were going to buy. Jesus in no uncertain terms, is telling Peter, he's telling the disciples, and he's telling us today who he really is and what sort of Christ they are seeking to follow. A suffering, dying, rising Christ who dies for sins and is raised again to justify sinners to God. Not merely some Christ who's going to establish some political kingdom. No, something far better than that. But the way that he he achieves that is through the means that Peter's saying, no way, I don't want any part of that. Jesus tells us exactly who he is and what he must do and exactly what kind of Christ he is so that we can know what kind of what Christ it is that we're following. Jesus tells us the Christ that we follow, but he doesn't leave us there. He goes on in verses 34 through the end of our passage, chapter 9, verse 1, to tell us the cost of following Jesus, the cost of following the Christ. And perhaps the spirit of full disclosure, but more likely in order to make it clear for everyone, Jesus calls the crowd again to himself. He had been with the disciples, just he and the disciples. Now he brings the crowd, allows the crowd to come back to him again. And he lays out for all who are listening the full cost of discipleship. And the cost, friends, is steep. It's steep. Christ's followers, those who would come after him, embrace a particular kind of life that in some ways mirrors the life of their Messiah. Christ's followers, as Jesus says, must embrace self-denial and suffering as disciples. Jesus says in verse 34, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. If you want to follow Jesus, that is to be a Christian, Jesus gives you three commands to follow. First, you must deny yourself. Now, all of these three come as, as commands in the way that Mark wrote them. It doesn't always come through very well in the way that our English Bibles are translated. But if we were to translate it something like like very literally, we would say something like this. If anyone wishes or desires to come after me, he must deny himself. He must take up his cross. He must follow me. These three things are necessary for following Jesus. First, denying yourself. You must deny yourself. The New Living Translation, if you're reading uh, out of that English translation, says you must give up your own way. I think that's somewhat helpful. To deny yourself is not simply to 
deny yourself of some pleasure. That's usually how we talk about it. I'm denying myself of the pleasure of donuts and carbs and Netflix. That's not what Jesus is talking about. It is to deny your own self-will, your, your own desire to have life on your terms. It is to deny doing what you want, when you want, with who you want, how you want, where you want, in your own timing. It's to set all of that aside, to say, I am no longer determining the specific course of my life. It is to pray like Jesus in the garden, Father, not my will, but yours be done. That's what it is to deny self. Jesus says those who come after me have to deny. They have to give up their own way. Secondly, Jesus says you must take up your cross. The cross, we know, is a picture of death. Many of us will have crosses as a part of our jewelry or maybe some hanging on our wall in our home as a nice decoration. But in Jesus' day, there was not all of that positive sort of sentiment behind it. Crucifixion, even in Jesus' day, was already an old form of execution. It had been around for several hundred years, even before Jesus was born. In the process of crucifixion, you know, the condemned individual was often first beaten and flogged with whips, and they were then frequently strapped to a large beam of wood and forced to carry it to the place of their execution, where there they would have their arms then fixed somewhat permanently to that beam and then hoisted up. And that's, that horizontal beam is attached to a, a vertical beam, and they would be left there to die, naked, in public, for everyone to see, to mock, to spit on, to insult in our modern day, the phrase, this is the cross that I bear, means something rather tame, like this is the challenge I have to live with in life. But when Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me, that, that idea of carrying your cross was not some inconvenience of life. It was understood rather literally, viscerally, for all of the bloody, gory, deathly realities that came with it, when Jesus says, take up your cross, He's saying, get ready to die. Does Jesus mean here then that whoever follows Him must literally carry the instrument of their execution as they walk after Him? In some sense, no. He, he is speaking sort of figuratively about carrying the cross as a willingness to suffer for Him, to suffer behind Him even as He Himself will suffer. But also, yes, Jesus does mean that those who would follow Him must be ready to die, literally, for following Him. Friends, God keeps no secrets when it comes to this in His Word. Amen. Death for faithfulness to Christ is a real threat to His followers. Most of Christ's disciples died martyrs' deaths for their faithfulness to Him and to the Gospel. Some also literally by crucifixion. Some also literally had to take up their cross as they followed Jesus. Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, the dying and rising Messiah, he must deny himself, take up his instrument of execution, take up a willingness, a readiness to die, and then he must follow me, Jesus says. Taking following Jesus literally means that whoever wants to go after him submits themselves to the direction that he sets submits themselves to the way that he leads. That's what it means to make Jesus Lord, to follow Jesus. It's to say, Jesus, where you take my life is where I'm going. You call me to repentance of sin and faith in you, that's where I'm going. 
You call me to confess known sin and seek healing in the, in, the, in the context of relationship with other brothers and sisters, I'm going there. You call me to leave my life of comfort and move overseas to proclaim the gospel to difficult and difficult to reach people, I'm doing it. Not because necessarily I want to, but because it's where you're leading me. That's what it means to follow Jesus. To follow Him means to give all of yourself to Him, to do whatever He wants with you the way that he wants to do it, and even to be ready to suffer hardship in so doing. One commentator, David Garland, says this, unlike some contemporary peddlers of the gospel, Jesus does not offer his disciples varieties of self-fulfillment, intoxicating spiritual experiences, or intellectual stimulation. That's not what following Jesus is. He goes on, he says, he presents them with a cross. He does not invite them to try the cross on for size to see if they like it. He does not ask for volunteers to carry one for extra credit. This particular demand separates the disciples from admirers. This particular demand separates disciples from the admirers. Just a moment. Are you a disciple of Jesus or an admirer of Jesus? Disciples must do more than survey the wondrous cross, glory in the cross of Christ, and love the old rugged rugged cross as beloved hymns have said it. They must become like Jesus in obedience and live the cross. There's no bones about it. Christ is clear about the cost of following Him. It's everything. It costs everything. Friend, would you follow Jesus? Given this disclosure of what it means to follow Him, would you follow Him? If so, I I call you, I call all of us, myself included, to count the cost of discipleship. Jesus calls for total denial of all self-will and a readiness to die if God should will it. Though Jesus may not will for you to die for your faith, and that is not, uh, and it's not a ready threat to us in our current context that we would die for our faith. That's not necessarily a threat we're going to face tomorrow morning. But Jesus does require you to die to self and to sin. Taking up your cross to follow Jesus is to crucify all your sins, every selfish desire, every self-advancing motive, every self-aggrandizing affection. It is a call to die, to die a death to sin by repenting from it. And and not just doing it once, but every moment of every day we follow Him. All of the Christian life is repentance, a denying and a dying to sin. Taking up the cross of discipleship is costly. It is expensive. John Owen, the English pastor and theologian, said for Christians that it is absolutely imperative that we be killing sin or it will be killing us. Be crucifying sin, or sin will be killing you. When Jesus says, deny yourself, pick up your cross following me, follow me, he's saying, kill your sin. Find life in me. To take up the cross of discipleship and follow Jesus, friend, let's just get real for a few minutes. Do you need to move out from living with your boyfriend who you've been sleeping with and engaging in sorts of activities that belong in, in, in the covenant of marriage? Do you need to repent of a substance addiction and seek help for recovery? To take up the cross of discipleship and follow Jesus, do you need to apologize to your husband for that outburst of anger and seek his forgiveness? Do you need to confess that you've been embezzling money from your work and make plans for restitution? 
to take up the cross of discipleship and follow Jesus, do you need to stop lying? Knowing that people love the image of yourself that you've crafted through dishonesty. To take up the cross of discipleship and follow Jesus, do you need to confess to your spouse and a trusted Christian of the same gender that you've been looking at pornography? To follow Jesus, do you need to quit the lucrative job that you have because it's increased your love of money and that greedy desire within you? Might you need to take your kids out of travel sports because their success, their athletic success has become an idol to you and you're teaching them to make it an idol for themselves? Or perhaps because you've had to sacrifice your connection to the body of Christ for sports? Can't go to church this week, we're traveling again. Do you need to finally fill out that International Mission Board missions application, knowing that it's what God has called you to? But you couldn't imagine leaving your aging parents behind to, for you to go overseas. To follow Christ and take up your cross, do you need to tell your Sunday school class you can't teach them anymore because God has called you to disciple youth and children? Do you need to sell your too expensive car and buy something more affordable, maybe something more humble, so that you can enjoy the blessing of tithing to God through your local church? To take up the cross of discipleship and follow Jesus, do you need to take a job in another state because God has told you to go, even though you'd be leaving so much comfortability, church, family, extended family behind here in Albuquerque? To follow Jesus, take up your cross, deny yourself, follow Him. Do you need to clean out that extra bedroom of your house? And finally, take those foster care certification classes to be obedient what God has called you to do and opening your home to the orphan? Friends, repentance of sin... Dying to self is hard, and it causes us to grieve. My guess is some of you heard some of those questions, and you're thinking, that's me, or that's close to me. And in, in the process of thinking about what, what is required to turn, to repent of that sin, and move toward Christ, you, you experience just a moment, even if just fleeting, a moment of grief. Repentance kills sin, and that's a good thing. But friends, we love sin. And death always leads to grief. So do not be surprised to find a tinge of sadness that comes with trusting Jesus and walking away from sin. To follow Jesus, we are often having to say no and no more to things that we have come to love. Things that are ultimately killing us, but things that we love nonetheless. There's a sadness that comes of repenting from greed, repenting of lust, repenting from anger, because we're giving up control of those things to Jesus. It is sad to say goodbye to things that we love, even sin. But when, we, when what we love is destroying us, when what we love is killing us, and we say no to it, that grief turns quickly to joy when we find freedom from its destructive slavery. Jesus says, if you want to come after me, you must deny yourself. You must take up your cross. You must follow me. Kill your sin or it will be killing you. Why then, why would anybody say yes to that? If this is what Jesus requires all of my life to follow him, why would I ever say yes? Well, the answer comes in the verses we've already read. We say yes to Jesus. We say no to self. We say yes to the cross. We say yes to repentance and a life of giving our whole will over, our whole life and direction over to Him because of the reward that Christ gives to those who do. 
We follow Jesus in order to have life. Life. And, and I'm not talking about just a few more years tacked on to your life after, you know, with the help of medical advancements. I'm not talking about, we're talking about life in the sense of meaning, purpose, a fullness of life in this life and in the one to come. We follow Jesus to have life. Jesus gives us this quirky little paradox in the verses that follow what we've just read that isn't all that hard to understand. He says, whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Translation, whoever wants to hold on to his own willful way of living the way he desires will ultimately, in the end, lose the life that he fought to gain. The person who holds tightly to the life that they've created for themselves and all the trappings of this world that come with it will, in the end, lose everything they've held on to. But whoever gives up his reign on his soul to me and holds tightly to me, whoever holds this world with an open hand and holds on to me with white-knuckled grasp, whoever looses his own power of his own soul will in the end not have death, but will receive life that is full and free. When Jesus says, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? What can a man give in return for his soul? He's saying your soul, your life, the the same word in, in Greek, suke, it's the word we get psyche from, is used in both places, life, soul. Your soul, your life, dear friend, is of inestimable value. There's no price tag you can put on it. Your soul is priceless. And if you sell your soul to the gods of the world, if you sell your soul to wealth and fame and women or men or pleasure, personal glory, your reputation, you sell your soul to that, you're the one getting swindled. Rather, Jesus says, give your priceless soul to me. Give your priceless soul to the one who is able to raise his son from the grave exchanging your will, your determination for your life, for God's will leads to purpose. Losing your soul to God's care leads to security. Losing your life for Christ's sake leads to resurrection. Jesus says, if you want life, give it up. The prize for following Christ, even to death, The prize for following Christ, even if it does literally require our death for our faithfulness to Him. The reward for following Him is being acknowledged by Him when He comes in glory. Jesus says in verse 38, whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of Him, will the Son of Man also be ashamed when He comes in the glory of His Father with the holy angels. He said to them, truly, I say to you, there's some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come. The prize for following Christ, even to death, is being acknowledged by him. Now, Jesus makes this point negatively by saying, whoever's ashamed of me in this generation, I'll be ashamed of him when I come again in glory. Now, there is a, as he says this, Jesus is teaching that there is a definite punishment. There is a certain negative consequence for rejecting Jesus because we're ashamed of following a suffering Savior. And that punishment is to find oneself under that same resurrected Savior's judgment and in hell for eternity. To be ashamed of Jesus in this life leads to absence of relationship with Jesus in this life and in the next one forever. But the inverse of this statement is also true. If we are glad to count Christ as Savior today, 
and graciously and faithfully endure the shame of the world for following Jesus, then when he comes to judge the living and the dead on the last day, then we will be found not in his shame, friends, but in his favor, shining in his glory, living forever in his presence. If you want to save your life, give it up. To assure the disciples of this promise, Jesus says kind of a quizzical, kind of a weird statement in chapter 9, verse 1. He says, there are some of you standing here who will not taste death. You will not die until you see the kingdom of God after it has come in power. What in the world is Jesus talking about? Now, I don't think that this is a prediction of Jesus' second coming after his resurrection. He's not saying some of the disciples are going to live forever until Jesus returns. We have not seen Jesus return a second time. All of those disciples and all that crowd that heard him that day, they dead. What is Jesus saying? He's saying that, that he's giving them an, an assurance that the resurrection itself is the kingdom of God coming with his resurrection power and glory. The disciples in the crowd standing here hearing this are going to, some of them are going to see Jesus with their own eyes, raised from the dead in power and glory. Some of them are, are going to go on to witness the advance of the church throughout the known world, the gospel spreading to so many peoples in so many places and, and Christ being loved and lives being transformed by the power of the gospel uh, uh, gladly received in the hearts of those who have believed it. They're going to see the kingdom of God coming in power in their day. Friends, we're witnesses to the kingdom of God coming in power. Jesus is not talking about disciples living forever or living, uh, staying alive until he comes a second time. He's saying... You can know of the reward that I'm promising you because you'll see me raised from the dead in all the power of God. The disciples would in their own lifetime be blessed to receive the affirmation of Christ's power to give them life even though they lose their own because they saw him raised from the dead. The Christ that we follow is a suffering, dying Messiah. The cost of following Jesus is expensive. It requires all of us now, I need to confess this morning that I am a, a serial liar. Every time I see the little box on online subscription forms that says, I have read the terms and conditions of this agreement, <laughs> I almost always check yes, knowing full well that I have not read the terms and conditions. All of you just confess the same sin. <laughs> Most of the time... Most of the time, those terms and conditions have relatively little real effect for me other than giving Google or Apple or Amazon permission to sift through and to sell my email address to any one of a hot bazillion different mailing lists. But when I bought my house, you better believe I read every word in six-point font of the hot bazillion pages of my mortgage contract. Why? Because of the cost to me if I should default. Or if there was something that might be snuck in that I didn't take the time to understand. You better believe when it came to real decisions, significant decisions, I sift over every word put in front of me requiring my signature. As a pastor and a preacher of the gospel of Jesus Christ, friends, I have no intention of hiding from you, hiding from any of us, the terms and conditions of following Jesus. And you must understand what it is that you are saying yes to when you say yes to following Jesus. You are saying yes 
Jesus is the Son of God. He is God's Christ who gave his sinless life at the cross for my redemption. Yes, he was raised physically from the grave. And yes, he is coming again. When you say yes to following Jesus, you are saying, yes, I am repenting. I am turning from all known sin and daily dying to my own self-will so that I can live following the loving and delightful will of Christ for me. And if it should cost me my actual life, I'm ready to follow Christ there too. That's what it is to say yes to Jesus. To say yes to Jesus is not to say yes to an easy answer to every problem in life. In many, in many occasions, it's, it's saying yes to more and more difficult problems in life. Jesus doesn't hide the cost of discipleship from his disciples or from the crowd. He's not trying to gather a, a following to puff, a, puff himself up and to, to give him a grand reputation. He's not trying to be that conquering king that reestablishes geopolitical Israel to its former glory. No, he's a king who knows that he's got to suffer for the sins of his kingdom citizens and be raised again. So that, so that he can build a kingdom, make a kingdom of people from every tribe, nation, tongue, and people group who confess Christ as Lord, who deny their own determination for their own life, who pick up their cross, who pick up a life of dying to sin and follow after him. The cost of discipleship is high. And to be sure, any definition of discipleship, short of what Jesus lays out here in Mark chapter 8, friends, that's not discipleship at all. But the reward for following Christ is equally high. The cost is high and the reward is high. The, the reward for following Christ is equally grand. It is equally worthy. It is a life of a kind and a quality that only our holy, loving God can give. And not just that kind of life for this life, but that kind of life forever. Trusting Christ, following Him, will cost you everything. Following Christ will cost you everything. And that doesn't mean you're going to go and sell your house and give everything to the poor and live in a car or live on the street tomorrow. But what it costs is your, your own determination to do whatever you want with those things. Now, all of my life is submitted to Christ. Not just my soul, though at least that, but also my paycheck is submitted to Christ. My house is submitted to Him. My family is submitted to Christ. My relationships with my neighbors, that's submitted to Jesus. The way I comport myself out in, in, in my workplace or out in the world, that's submitted to Jesus. My, my children's future is submitted to Jesus. Now, you want to talk about sacrifice, right? What if your kid grows up and tells you they want to go on the mission field? They want to move thousands of miles away to a country where you'll be able to call them or contact them maybe once a month if the Lord provides, Right? You want to talk about being submitted to Jesus? Being a parent who's ready to say, or a grandparent who's ready to say, yes, go. I'll see you when I see you. And even if, even if it's not until the next life, I'm giving that to Jesus too. All of life belongs to Him. Trusting Christ, following Him, costs us everything. Literally everything. But if you're willing to give Him everything, friend, Christ Himself is pleased to give you all of himself, in all of his holiness, in all of his glory, in all of his resurrection power. You've had explained already this morning, Christ's clear and costly, but life-giving call to discipleship. 
The call now to each of us is to consider, will we follow him? Will we follow him? For some of you, you need to consider that for the first time. Will I follow Jesus? I'm not today. I'm not necessarily trusting that, that he is the one who died for my sins and was raised again. And you're confronted right now with what the cost of following Jesus is. You're thinking about whether or not you can believe that Christ, whether you can give your life to him. Some of you have been following Jesus for a long time. You've got areas of your life that you're still holding on to really tightly. You're afraid to lose if you give it up to Jesus. And the call to discipleship and the cost of discipleship weighs on your heart this morning. Wherever you may find yourself spiritually or, or, or physically, mentally this morning in light of this call to discipleship, I encourage us as we prepare to worship uh, or respond to God's word in worship to begin surveying your heart right now for any loves, any passions, any affections, any possessions that are hindering you from following Jesus this way. Survey your own faith. Survey your forms of worship and, and your discipleship for expectations, for hopes, for preferences that you are not denying things that Christ wants to be Lord over, but you're still holding tightly onto. I'm inviting you, church family, even survey your church for practices, for patterns, for preferences that are preventing us from following Jesus. Let's not assume that we're beyond a need to die to sin and self, even as a church, as we seek to follow Him. But as I pray and as we respond to God's Word by singing, you survey your heart, you survey your faith, you survey your church, you survey your affections. Determine if you'll answer that call to follow Jesus with a resounding, faithful, bold, courageous yes. Yes, I will say no to myself. Yes, I will take up my cross. Yes, I will follow Him because the reward is so worth it.